appreciate what Apologia Anglicana is doing? Support us on Patreon at the link below, or find us under the link tree below. Introduction Bishop Grafton was the second Episcopal Bishop of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, from 1889 to 1912. He was a strong supporter of the Anglo-Catholic movement within the Episcopal Church. His complete works are printed in eight volumes, which can be found at the link below. One of these works is called A Catholic Atlas, or Digest of Catholic Theology, comprehending fundamentals of religion, summary of Catholic doctrine, means of grace, perfection with its rules and councils, worship and its laws. This work is a helpful and concise introduction to the main points of Catholic theology. This work's format is confusing and has not been edited and republished. Therefore, over the next few months, I will be editing and releasing in one article at a time every Wednesday. Take up and read. Preface Dear Reader, Thou wilt find somewhat in this book that will disagree with thee, and in what it disagrees with thee thou wilt find thy most advantage. If it be not writ by the Spirit, mayest thou be enlightened to the answering thereof to thy prophet. What cometh of the Spirit will profit, if thou hast that gracious humility, which hath ever been the crown and glory of a Christianly disposed mind. There be many books of human making the author has consulted in forming this, but that whereby he has most profited is the Holy Scriptures, interpreted by the common consciousness of apostolic Christendom, and made vital by meditation and prayer. For all lovers of Jesus agree in this, that the doctrine of the cross is best learnt in the companionship of those most closely united to him, and at the foot of the cross. The dispositions of our time have engendered much disputation, and more indifference, along with widespread rejection of the Christian faith, which is a suggestive and peace-compassing sign, as betokening that the reign of evil is coming to an end, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The three principal forms of assault wear the livery and mask of science, of higher criticism, and of modern thought. Yet the truths for which two stand make them rather champions of the faith than its opponents. As the discovery of the Copernican system was found not to contradict the scriptures, so the discoveries of today in geology and of the process of evolution do not contradict them. As it was not declared in scripture that the world was made in six days, for the sun and moon did not appear till the fourth, the word written in the rocks does not contradict that written in Genesis. The evolutionary process in the formation of the universe only implies method and the intelligence of the eminent energy in directing it. The reign of law requires a lawgiver, whose laws being of his own making are his and not he their servant. They are like the keys of an instrument on which the divine hand, bringing out new harmonies, plays. In the presence of the new knowledge that all matter is but the expression of electricity and any so-called element is changeable into another, the objections to certain miracles in the New Testament practically cease. The modern study of Holy Scripture has revealed much concerning the authority and origin of certain books, the redactions, the employment of Babylonian material, the incorporation of folklore and poetry into them, 
It has shown the human element of the writers in their style, limitations, and historical omissions. But the regular and orderly development of the types in the patriarchal stage and in the law, and the revealed providential guidance of the Hebrew race through its history, the unity and progressive unfolding of the great design of the promised deliverer that runs through it, are witnesses to the fact that a mind other than that of the writers guided their productions. The existence and evidences of the human element make, by contrast, more significant the presence of the divine. The third opponent is modern thought, the most advanced form of which seeks no reconciliation with Christianity but its overthrow. It holds that all religions are controlled by development, and that this presupposes change and so final disillusion. It asserts that Christianity will therefore pass away. It rejects the supernatural or the possibility of miracles. It disbelieves in the inspiration of the scriptures. As man's sinfulness is irreconcilable with modern philosophy, redemption, according to it, has no place in religion. It denies as worthless the Christian principles of self-denial and self-sacrifice, and the ideal of the Christian life. It adopts for its conduct the Epicurean philosophy of self-pleasing and self-indulgence. It does not believe in a future heaven and lives for this life only. The vices recorded in the Old Testament are quoted without reference to the punishments visited by God upon them. While these advanced thinkers gloss over the immoralities of the ancient Greek life which they commend. This attack has nothing new in it. It admits to notice that Christianity is based on a person in a way no other religion is, and has within it a supernatural and indestructible power that ensures it from destruction. It is proved pragmatically to be the absolute religion, because it has been found adapted to all men of all nations. It is not a series of doctrines, but a system imparting spiritual gifts, proved to be true by experiment in the experience of millions. We Christians know that we have passed from a mere natural into a supernatural state of life. We have been illumined by the Holy Spirit to the perception and reception of the faith. We do not merely believe in God. We have come to know Him. He dwells in us, and we in Him. The Father and the Spirit make in us their abode. They fill us with strength of will and light of understanding, and with a joy and peace that the world cannot give. In a more modified form, the modern thought shows itself within the church. It rejects authority. It disbelieves in most of the miracles. It does not hold the Bible to be God's word. It bases itself or tries to do so on facts. It begins with man's nature and its supposed needs. Its purposed object is to give an uplift to humanity. Its means are the development of character and an altruistic spirit. It says scholasticism must give way to modern thought. It would not have dogmas imposed by church authority. If it recites the creeds, it puts its own interpretation upon it, denying the facts stated to be facts. It regards the creeds as a banner or symbol of a religious cause, which good men are not required to believe, but are invited to follow. It leaves men to believe as they please, and only asks that they be moral men and love their fellows. This system does not recognize the fact that the Christian religion was not the product of human thought, but a revelation, and it is therefore not changeable. It is incompatible with the truth that the guardianship of this revelation 
was not committed to the keeping of a church indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It does not realize that Christian character depends on an actual and not a mere moral union of the individual with the humanity of Christ. It does not see that dogma is like the walls of a well that protect the water from running to waste, and yet do not hinder within limits the fresh free thought from rising up within. It says, give us religion but not dogmas, which is much like saying, give us the heavenly bodies but not astronomy. Give us flora but not botany. Give us fauna but not zoology. Give us atoms and molecules but not chemistry. Theology is much a necessity of religion as the science of geology is of the earth. Moreover, the dogmas of the church are a protection to the unlearned and simple from the vagrancies of the intellectual. Give up dogmas and an undogmatic church would become a whirlpool of contradictory speculations and a mother of unbelief. The phrase of modern or broad church thought has been placed under the papal ban. There is a difference, however, between the condemnations by the whole church and by the papacy. It is not that the papacy represents only a portion of the Catholic Church, but as in the individual Christian, there is a human spirit and a divine spirit, so it is in the church. The difficulty with the papacy is that it, like modern thought, is the production of the human spirit. The contest between modern thought and the papacy is not, therefore, as is ordinarily thought, between rationalism and authority. Modern thought and the papacy are both manifestations of the human spirit in insubordination to the divine. The papacy is defended by many on the theory of development, the same theory as that of modern thought. But the method, the end, and the final result of its development shows that it is the work of the human and not of the divine spirit. First, in the contributory means of its growth, we find frauds and forgeries. Now God has no need of men's lies to carry out his plans. Second, in the end reached by the development, we have a double monarchy, which is both aspects is a manifestation of earthly wisdom, of love of power, and of a carnal mind. Third, in the final outcome, we have in the papacy a repetition of Israel's sin in desiring a visible head, with the result of the division of Christendom. Thus, both the papacy and modern thought are alike the outcome of the human spirit. If, dear reader, thou wouldest be controlled by the divine spirit, thou must first abide in the holy apostolic Catholic Church in which he dwelleth. Given by Christ, he entered into it at Pentecost and abides in it to this day. By his presence, the church becomes something more than a divine society. It is a spiritual organism. Its unity being organic, like that of the Father and Son, cannot be broken, united by the sacraments to Christ. As living members of this spiritual organism, we are filled with its light. In that light, we understand the faith revealed. The opinions of scholars who live outside the sphere of divine illumination is most likely to be erroneous. The more intellectual they are, it is only in the church and by the spirit that dwelleth in it the truth is known. If it be necessary to be within the body to understand the faith, it is also needful to enter into its life. The faith is best understood by the saints. It is by the spiritual that things spiritual are discerned. This is the law of the church's construction and interpretation of her scriptures. She seeks not to know the mind of the writers, but of the Holy Spirit, their author. 
and what the Holy Spirit dwelling in the church reads out of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit must have put into them to be so read. This way, the way Christ and the apostles interpreted the Holy Scriptures in their prophecies. This was the way Christ and the apostles interpreted the Holy Scriptures in their prophecies. To be faithful within the spiritual organism, they are a confirmation of the faith to those without. The Scriptures are not the same import as to those within. They are not by themselves convincing proofs to the unbelieving, and not intended to be. For the unbelieving needs first to be brought under conviction of sin, and to be converted and submit to Christ, and then in the body to be fully instructed. It is thus in the mystical body of the church, and as filled with the Spirit we learn from the church, as one whole entity, what Christ has revealed as necessary for our salvation, and by acting on it become identified with him. It may be stated that the idea of the present book came from a French work published 50 years ago by Abbe Monnier, but it is not a translation, the order and general treatment being different, and the author would gratefully acknowledge his indebtedness to it. It is said that while of the clergy there are no better than the Anglican, the Anglican laity are largely uninstructed in the faith. This treatise, it is hoped, will aid priests desirous of teaching their people by giving them outlines, easily filled up with the texts and illustrations, out of which they can give courses of dogmatic instruction. The signs of the time call for such instruction, for Christian character and devotion rest on Christian dogma, and as in preparation for the first coming of Christ, there was a special work of the Spirit in the development of sanctity. So the second is to be heralded by signs of persecution and unbelief on the one hand, and by a deep revival of saintliness on the other. The church is arising from her slumbers. The hearts of men are crying out for a living Christ and a practical Christianity. In Rome, men are becoming sick of the machine, the show, and the intrigues of a worldly monarchical system. They want something more vital in its piety, more in touch with human wants. In England and America, men are turning from the shallowness and unsatisfactoriness of a disguised Unitarianism. It is humbly believed that the Anglican Church is being roused to her great, providentially protected and designated mission. She has a message to all people. May God unite and inspire her to bear it. The joyous end is drawing nigh when the predestined number of the elect will be completed and the kingdom of righteousness will be ushered in by the glorious coming of his divine majesty. Then the systems developed by the human spirit of sects and papacy will be scourged up in the divine light, and the church will be finally purified. Then the temporally available permission of evil and sin will cease, and goodness will finally triumph. The faithful will be gathered into glory and upheld in sinlessness, will be eternally blessed. The wicked will be unable to sin, for grace being withdrawn it cannot be resisted, and neither without it can any repent. The state of each will thus be eternally fixed. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Bishop Charles Grafton